Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. I was running in the woods on Tuesday morning when something caught my eye off to the right in the shallows of the beaver pond. Not a little something like a blue jay taking flight or a mallard gliding on the surface, but a sudden and big something, a kind of a flash. I stopped. It took a moment for my eyes to sort out water and scrub brush and trees and something, the brilliant yellow-orange of his long, slender bill gave him away, a great blue heron. I love them. Over four feet tall with an almost six-foot wingspan, the great blue has a white face with a white crown and a black plume extending down the back of their head. Their body is blue-gray with black shoulders, and they have a long, S-curved neck that folds into their back in their improbable flight. I watched it feed for a while, thrilled, and then picked up my run. As a couple came toward me, I slowed my pace. I couldn't wait to tell them about the heron. There's a great blue down the hill to your left, I said. The gentleman scowled. I have a koi pond, he growled. You think you found something great, but you haven't. I passed them, taking, I'll admit to you, some small pleasure in hearing the opening volley of his female companion, letting him have it for his rudeness, her choice adjectives surprising me, and then making me laugh as they faded into the distance. I thought again of Wendell Berry's The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. I had found something great. But my crabby companion in the woods didn't know it. He was too worried about his beloved koi, his carp, whom the great blue apparently love as well. He was miserable, streaming misery, and missing something great. So here's where my thinking went. Welcome to my mind. First, maybe he could cover his carp pond with a net 
with holes large enough for tasty insects, but too tiny for the great blue. Next, the Japanese also love koi, introduced to them by the Chinese. Selective breeding has resulted in their varied, brilliant colors. The emperor's gardens are full of koi ponds. The Japanese regard them as good luck. Surely they know how to protect carp from great blues. And then, carp are common freshwater fish. I'm sure Mr. Krabby Pants doesn't know that the US Department of Agriculture lists several kinds of carp as invasive species. Worldwide, large sums of money are spent on carp control. Okay, that wasn't very nice. <clears throat> I had arrived at the limits of my knowledge about carp. When I got back from my run, I decided I would look them up. And I meant to type in carp, but I added an E at the end. And it was time to write a sermon. C-A-R-P-E, carpe. Carpe diem. Carpe, meaning to pick, pluck, pluck off, cull, gather. And diem, meaning day. Horace, the leading poet during the reign of Augustus in the first century before the Common Era, coined the phrase, carpe diem, seize the day. Actually, there's more. It's carpe diem, quam minimum credula postera. Seize the day, putting as little trust as possible in the future. It's all about right now. All we can know and all we have to live. So now I'm off on an entirely new tangent, following the prodding of the spirit, or simply my typo, which I'll take as one and the same. I'm thinking about the crabby man missing the greatness of the great blue, and then as he is berated for his rudeness, missing the restorative sweetness of a walk in the woods. I'm thinking about the ways we are offered the gift of a day, the ways we seize the day, but then drop it or forget that we've seized it and accidentally let it go. I'm thinking about the ways we let our lives be disrupted far beyond the moments of disruption. For example, I spent more time on Tuesday morning thinking about the carp man than about the great blue heron. How can we return, how can we train our minds to return? To return, as it were, to the heron. To come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. Author Norman McLean's father was a Presbyterian minister and a fly fisherman. In Norman McLean's autobiographical novella, A River Runs Through It, he writes, on Sunday mornings, my brother Paul and I went to Sunday school and then to morning services to hear our father preach and in the evenings to Christian endeavor and afterwards to evening services to hear our father preach again. In between, on Sunday afternoons, we had to study the Westminster Shorter Catechism for an hour and then recite 
before we could walk the hills with him while he unwound between services. But he never asked us more than the first question in the catechism. Does anyone know it? I'll tell you. What is the chief end of man? And we answered together so one of us could carry on if the other forgot. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This always seemed to satisfy him, and indeed, such a beautiful answer should have satisfied him. And besides, he was anxious to be in the hills where he could restore his soul. As a Scot and a Presbyterian, my father believed that man, by nature, was a mess and had fallen from an original state of grace. Somehow, I early developed the notion that he had done this by falling from a tree. As for my father, he certainly believed that only by picking up God's rhythms were we able to regain power and beauty. Unlike many Presbyterians, he often used the word beautiful. My father was very sure about certain matters pertaining to the universe. Norman MacLean concludes, to him, all good things, trout as well as eternal salvation, come by grace. And grace comes by art. And art does not come easy. To seize the day is to pick up the divine rhythm, to practice an art that yields the grace of power and beauty. To seize the day is a practice, a spiritual practice, like studying catechism, or fly fishing, or walking the hills, or something harder, much harder, like waging holy war against dissolution and degradation, depression, and death. Ama Sincletica, one of the third century Egyptian hermits known as the Desert Fathers said, in the beginning there is struggle and a lot of work for those who come near to God. But after that, there is indescribable joy. It's like building a fire. At first it's smoky and your eyes water, but later you get the desired result. Thus, we ought to light the divine fire in ourselves with tears and effort. To seize the day is an art that comes with practice. If we are very lucky, the yield as grace as when a great blue heron stops us in our tracks. Grace being under the influence of the divine. The relationship between spiritual practice and grace is a mystery, but I am willing to wager my life on the possibility that spiritual practice makes us more available and more accessible to grace. More accessible to grace and less accessible to Mr. Krabby Pants in all his distressing manifestations. Do you remember Alice Walker's The Color Purple? Shug says, more than anything, God loves admiration. And Celia asks, you saying God's vain? 
And Shug answers, no, not vain, just wanting to share a good thing. God is not happy, she says, when you walk by the color purple in a field and don't notice. Everything want to be loved. To seize the day is to notice, to remember, to pay attention. What is it about that first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? What is it about that question that is just enough, the only question really that any of us has to answer? Let's reframe it, question and answer. Question, what is our purpose? Answer, to fulfill our divine calling and to savor the gift of life. Everything want to be loved. We answer the question of purpose with our lives. We practice the answer by seizing the day, returning to this present moment over and over, not dissuaded, derailed, or discouraged from our divine calling. One of my favorite Zen stories comes from a time of civil war in Korea when a certain general led his troops through province after province, overrunning everything in his path. The people of one town, hearing of his approach, fled into the mountains. The general arrived in an empty town and sent his troops to search for those who might have stayed behind. They returned with the report that only one person remained, a Zen priest. The general strode over the table, stormed in, drew his sword and said, don't you know who I am? I am the one who can run through you without batting an eye. The Zen master bowed to him, looked deeply into his face, and responded calmly, and I, sir, am the one who can be run through without batting an eye. Hearing this, the general bowed and left. Beloved spiritual companions, as we run through our days, may we be blessed with a great blue heron, with something great in our path. When Mr. Krabby Pants, or worse, starts in about his carp, may we bow and add the E to carp. Leave him behind and carpe diem arriving in this present moment over and over again by giving ourselves to divine rhythms, practicing returning to our purpose and our divine calling, we will gain and regain power and beauty and meaning. May we remember to notice Everything want to be loved. May we know grace.